Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Fulfillment in the baby born at Bethlehem, Jesus Christ our Lord. The events in Exodus 33 find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And so I want to consider that with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, again, you can open them to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 6, and then we're going to jump down and pick up in verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate a Bible in one of the chairs nearby in front of you, and the text is on page 42 in those Bibles. And so again, we're going to begin Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Skipping down to verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Again, we are celebrating Christmas at Sinai because Exodus chapter 33 gives us a revelation that finds its fulfillment in Jesus, born on Christmas Day. And the first thing that I want us to see here in Exodus chapter 33 is a revelation of God with us. A revelation of God with us. 
Now, to give the broader context of this chapter, remember that the book of Exodus begins with the people of Israel in Egypt as slaves. And so God calls Moses to bring his people out of slavery by appearing before Pharaoh and demanding that Pharaoh let the people of God go. And Pharaoh refuses to do this, and so God unleashes a series of 10 plagues upon the Egyptians recorded in Exodus chapters 7 through 12, at the end of which Pharaoh relents and he lets the people go. But he immediately regrets this and pursues the Israelites up to the edge of the Red Sea, at which time God parts the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites cross over on dry ground and the water comes back over the pursuing, the pursuing Egyptian army and wipes them out. And so now with their enemies defeated, the Israelites go into the wilderness and they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 after about three months period of time. And they remain there through the rest of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and up to Numbers chapter 10 verse 11, which ends up being about a year's time. During that time, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and receives instructions and commandments from the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And so the people who are down from the mountain begin doubting, become fearful and questioning and impatient, and they build a golden calf and worship it. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 32. So just one chapter before the chapter we read, we read about this episode with the golden calf. And it's this episode with the golden calf that helps us understand the Lord's word that he speaks in verses one through three. Where he basically explains to Moses that even in light of the sinfulness of the people, he will be faithful to his promise to bring the people into the land that he swore to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will drive out their enemies and enable them to possess it. But we read in verse three, the Lord says this, but I will not go up among you. The people would go up, but God announces here that he's canceling his reservations in the land. And he's doing so for their good, lest he consume them on the way. Or according to verse five, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. You see, because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the people so clearly displayed in the building and worshiping of the golden calf, it would be safer for Israel if the Lord doesn't go with them. Because this sin has fractured has caused a breach in the relationship with God and his people. And we can detect indications of this breach and these fractures subtly in verse one, where the Lord refers to Israel as the people rather than as my people. And another subtle indication in verse two where he refers to sending an angel rather than sending my angel. My angel is language that the Lord has used in the past when he talks about bringing the people up into the land. Ten chapters earlier, we read this in Exodus 23, 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. But no language of my angel here in Exodus 33. My angel likely being a reference to the presence of the angel of the Lord so commonly in scripture closely associated with the presence of God himself. Not my angel but now an angel. So God is no longer going into the land with the people and this news devastates them according to verse 4. They mourn and they strip themselves of their ornaments it's difficult to interpret exactly what's meant by these ornaments. Maybe it's just a display of genuine repentance. Maybe these ornaments have something to do with paganism or the idolatry associated with the golden calf. We can't be sure. 
We can't be certain. There's a lot of different interpretations about that. What we can be certain of is the people seem to grasp the gravity of God's words here. They're devastated because they seem to grasp also that the Exodus isn't just about living in the promised land. The Exodus is about living with God in the promised land, a kind of new Eden where God would walk among them and dwell among them. This is actually why we get so many detailed instructions about the building of the tabernacle when Moses is on the mountain in Exodus chapters 25 through 31. So think about that. From 25 to 31, the instructions that Moses has given on Mount Sinai are taken up with his concern about the building of the tabernacle and the priests who would minister there. From 25 to 31, in chapter 32, we read about the golden calf. In chapter 33, God says, I'm not going. I'm not going to be with you. Listen how the Lord himself describes this tabernacle. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's what the Exodus is about. That's what redemption is about. You see, redemption from Egypt and redemption from sin for us is so that we can live in the presence of God, that we can enjoy God with us. And so it should hardly be any surprise when we get to the end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, we read this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It's the hope of the scriptures. It's the hope of the Israelites. God with us. And it's the realization of this hope that now seems to be lost when God speaks in Exodus chapter 33. I'm not going with you. This causes commentator Peter Enns to write this. The significance of this turn of events cannot be stressed too highly. The whole purpose of the Exodus was God and his people to be together. God's presence with them will be firmly established in the proposed tabernacle by saying, go ahead, but you're going without me. The events of the previous 31 chapters are being undone. That's the gravity of what's happening here because, listen, the heart and the essence of God's blessings to us, the heart and the essence of his blessing to us is his presence with us. What is God's greatest blessing that he gives to us? himself to be with us. And we learn in verse 17 that God does in the end promise his presence to go with the people. But this promise of his presence finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christmas. That's why we're looking at Exodus 33 this morning. This promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christmas. We read in Matthew's gospel about a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. And the prophecy says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the reason Matthew is quoting this prophecy in chapter 1, verse 23, is because he's saying the fulfillment of this is found in the birth of Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God with us. The dwelling of God with us finds its fuller realization not in the tabernacle, but in the Word who would become flesh and who according to John chapter 1 verse 14 
would not merely dwell among us, but literally would tabernacle among us. The fulfillment of the tabernacle promise is found in the Jesus who would tabernacle among us, dwell with us, be with us as our Emmanuel. And the last recorded words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, testify to his abiding, ongoing presence with us as his people. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I know Christmas can be a difficult time for some of us because we're so acutely aware of who is not with us as we celebrate Christmas. Christmas can be a time of intensified loneliness and loss and sorrow. We may be nowhere near a place that feels like home to us. And we may have a great amount of fear about what this upcoming year will hold for us. And as legitimate as all those things are, we wouldn't want to minimize those. Call this to mind though, Christian. In light of all the fears and the losses and who is not with you this year, call this to mind. God is with you. Jesus has taken up residence in your own heart by his Holy Spirit. And he promises that he will never leave you and never forsake you. Jesus is the revelation of God with us. Jesus, our Emmanuel. But the reason that God agrees to go with the people in verse 17 results from some high-stake negotiations in verses 12 through 16 between Moses and God. And so the second thing that I want us to see here is a revelation of God for us. A revelation of God with us and a revelation of God for us. Moses' first line of arguments here in his negotiation seems to be that to lack God's presence with him compromises his ability to carry out his assigned task. He's been given this task to lead the people and bring them into the land that God promised. But if God's not going to go with him, how's he going to do that? And he says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You make mention of an angel, but I don't know which one. I don't know how I'm going to know this angel. I don't know how I'm going to follow this angel. And you say that I found favor in your sight. But if I found favor in your sight, then show me your ways. Show me your ways by staying with me. Oh, and by the way, this nation, this nation is to your people. Stay not only with me, but stay with us. These are your people. Moses could bring to mind to the Lord his reference to Israel as his firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. That's what he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my firstborn son Israel go. These are your people, Lord, the, the people you've redeemed with your own mighty hand and outstretched arm from Egypt. Stay with us. And it seems like God immediately grants his request in verse 14. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But what doesn't come out very well in English translations here is that God uses a singular form of you here. It's not a plural you, it's a singular. He's referring to Moses. He's saying, Moses, I will go with you and I'll help you lead the people in, but I'm not promising my presence with the people. I'm not promising to dwell with them. Just after the Lord is saying, I will go with you, Moses, but I'm still not going with y'all a singular you here. I'm not going with y'all. I'll go with you, Moses. 
which should help us understand why Moses responds the way he does in verses 15 and 16, with this emphasis not only on himself, but on the people. The emphasis on himself and the people together. Listen to what Moses says in verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, don't even bother bringing us up from here. We don't want to go. There's no point in being in the land if you're not going to be with us. But then he says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It's about Moses and the people together. Because Moses understands that Israel is nothing and nobody apart from their God. I mean, they have no land that identifies them yet as a people. They have no wealth. They have no status. They've been slaves for 400 years. They have no righteousness of their own that sets them apart. The Lord refers to them as a stiff-necked people twice in these verses. They are sinful, rebellious people. The only thing that makes Israel distinct is they belong to the Lord. And Moses understands that nothing else matters except that they are God's people and that God is with them and that he is for them. It's all that matters. So he's in these negotiations. And again, in verse 17, God consents. He consents to what Moses has asked. He promises to go with the people. Now, of course he does. Of course God says he's going to go with the people. Of course God is going to keep his promises. Of, of course God's purposes are going to move forward. And maybe God is pleased with the way the people responded in stripping off their ornaments as a sign of genuine repentance. Maybe he is pleased with that response, but the reason that we're given in the text for God granting Moses' request is God is pleased with Moses as the mediator he has appointed. That's the reason we get in the text. For you have found favor in my sight. The reason he grants the request is because he is pleased with Moses, the mediator, that he has provided for the people. This is actually the reason 7 through 11, verses 7 through 11 are here in the chapter. We didn't read them, but they show us the work of Moses as the mediator between God and his people. That's who Moses is. He's a mediator. And we, we arrive at an important principle here. God is for his people in the mediator he provides as the intercession of that mediator is for the people on their behalf. You see that? That's what's happening here. God is for his people in the mediator he provides as the intercession of that mediator is on behalf of the people. But the mediator that God provides finds its fulfillment in Christmas, find its fulfillment in Christmas. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that there is one mediator between God and men, and it's not Moses. It's the man, Christ Jesus, born on Christmas Day. Jesus is our mediator and our intercessor before the throne of God. And he is a greater mediator than Moses because he's able to plead what Moses was never able to plead. He's able to plead before the throne of God his own blood to atone for us. His blood standing between our sins and the wrath of the Father in his holiness and righteousness. Again, our assurance of pardon, Bob read, Joseph is told, you shall call his name Jesus 
Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And how does he do that? By offering up his own blood to atone for us, offering up himself as our mediator, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, to deliver us from death and to assure forgiveness and everlasting life. Jesus is the revelation of God for us as our mediator. I know you may have had a very tough year, a long year, maybe so much that you've begun to wonder if you've lost favor with God. Maybe you're even thinking that maybe God is against you. Well, you need to hear this this morning, Christian. He isn't. God isn't against you. He is for you. And he has demonstrated this in the sending of his son to atone for your sins and to reconcile you to himself. Jesus is for you. He is your mediator and intercessor before the throne of the Father, and he is interceding for you now in love, pleading his own blood shed for you to assure you of your forgiveness and your right standing before the Father. I don't have explanations as to why this past year has been so hard for you. I don't have any guarantees that this upcoming year isn't going to be hard for you. What I can assure you of is that if you've given your heart to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, He is for you. He loves you and delights in you. Notwithstanding all of your sins, your failures, and all of your ongoing struggles that don't seem to get any better, that you carry so much guilt about around, notwithstanding any of those things, God loves you and delights in you just as much as he loves and delights in his son, our mediator. Jesus, who was born for sinners on Christmas Day and who died for sinners, is the revelation of God for us. But Moses isn't done with his negotiations yet. He actually makes one last request, and it's for a revelation of God to us. Moses wants a greater revelation of God. He wants to see God in his glory. In verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. It's interesting that we read about how God knows Moses by name, repeatedly. It's almost as if Moses is saying, I want to know you by name. I want to see your glory in your name revealed to me. Show me more of your glory. And why not? God's already granted one of Moses' requests. Maybe he'll grant this one too. And he does, actually. Sort of. Right? He says to Moses in verse 19, I will make all my goodness, doesn't say glory, but he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. There is something about revealing his glory there in, in the revelation of his name to Moses. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 34, the very next chapter, verses 5 through 7, where God passes by Moses and he declares his covenant name, his attributes that reveal his glory. And you can look down there later if you want, but what I want us to see right here is there's a qualifier before us in verse 20. I will proclaim my name, but in verse 20 he says, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. See, Moses will be shielded by God's own hand in a rock as God's glory passes by. And God says in verse 23, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
You see, for a mortal sinner to be exposed to the fullness of God's radiance and glory would be deadly. (laughs) For a mortal sinner to be exposed to that weight of glory would be deadly. And so God protects Moses, and he's allowed only to see his back or his backside, or some older translations use that language, his hindquarters. This is such cryptic language. It's so mysterious. We're pressed up against the edges of what we can even begin to imagine of what Moses saw. What was Moses allowed to see on that mountain of God's glory? We can, we can only speculate. And again, it goes beyond our imagination. One commentator writes this. He says, God's face refers in some way to the direct revelation of the essence of his divine majesty. To see God's back is to have some lesser experience of his glory, what John McKay calls the after effects of the Lord's presence. We might think of what Moses saw as the contrails of God's glory, the luminous clouds that trailed from his divine being. We might think of it that way, but it's speculation. We don't know what Moses was allowed to see. In any event, Moses is longing for a revelation of God to us, to see him in his glory. Job longed for the same thing. Yet in my flesh, I shall see God. We hear David expressing this same longing. As for me, he writes in Psalm 17, 15, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Moses longs for this revelation of glory. Job is longing for this revelation of God to us in his glory. David longs for it. Do you long for a revelation of God's glory to you? Do you want to see the glory and majesty of God? Well, the revelation of God to us finds its fulfillment in Christmas. It finds its fulfillment in Christmas with the coming of Jesus, who according to John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word made flesh, and the Word was God. Jesus is the revelation of God himself to us. This is why we read this later. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. And then verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. Right, it harkens back to this language of Exodus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side. What is that a reference to? The only God who's at the father's side. That goes back to John 1, 1 the one who was with God and was God. The only God who was at the Father's side, Jesus has made him known. Literally, we could translate that. He has exegeted the Father to us. He has interpreted the Father to us. But what does it mean that Jesus has exegeted or interpreted the Father to us? Well, we get further glimpses of it later in John's Gospel. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, Jesus talking to his disciples says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, now listen to this, and have seen him. 
Now, Philip perhaps knows his Exodus theology. and He has his own longing in his heart to see a revelation of God's glory to us. And he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And this is how Jesus responds to him. He says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You know what Jesus is saying there, don't you? He is the revelation of God to us. To behold Jesus is to behold God. He is the word made flesh, the word who was God, and we have beheld his glory, and we behold it as we read it in the pages of Scripture. And because of this, because Jesus is the revelation of God to us, we can know God, and we can have a relationship with him but only through faith in Jesus. Only through faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus, we can know that God is with us and will never leave us or forsake us. We can know that God is for us and loves us and has atoned for our sins and reconciled us to him. And we can know God himself because to know Jesus by faith is to know God. And to know God is to know peace and everlasting this peace do you have this everlasting life through faith in Jesus have you trusted him as your savior and as your king if you haven't done that if you're here this morning and you haven't done that would you do that this morning would you confess your sinfulness and your need for a savior born for you on Christmas day would you repent of those sins and would you give your heart God and receive that gift because see whether we're home for Christmas whether we're at Sinai or whether we're somewhere else celebrating the coming of Christmas the revelation of God with us the revelation of God for us the revelation of God 